I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out today with Melanie Perkins, who's the co-founder and CEO of Canva.com. Melanie, it's great to see you. Lovely to see you. I was speaking with one of your investors, Nicky Skivak at Blackbird VC, and uh, he's very excited about the business, as he should be. And I guess one of the things that he was most intrigued was the authenticity of the origin story. (laughs) Uh, I think every good comic has a good origin story, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think your company's no, no different. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, how it, I guess, the genesis of the project? Yeah, absolutely. So I was at university and I was teaching design programs, so things like Photoshop and InDesign, and that was super complex and difficult. And it became very apparent that in the future it would all be online and collaborative and much simpler than this crazy chaotic thing that took six months to learn. <laughs> and so took that concept and um, I was 19 at this point in time and I had no business experience or marketing experience or product experience or software experience or actually like literally any experience that would be somewhat relevant. Um, but decided to start getting software developed and took that concept and applied it to school yearbooks. So we enabled school yearbooks to be designed online um, very simply. And then... Um, this is great. So another great, <laughs> this is being born out of school yearbooks. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little bit ironic. Yeah, um, yeah. and so we started um, making design simple for school yearbooks and that started really taking off and it became the largest yearbook company in Australia. We launched in France, New Zealand. Um, but a few years into it, I just realized that still no one was doing it for the mass market right. um, and enabling everyone to design anything. And so started that um, a few years ago and ended up spending a lot of time in San Francisco and getting to know the whole world of venture capital. Because even though we'd had a company for a few years, I knew nothing about venture capital or startups or anything. Um, so it was a whole new world. Design is not an obvious area to be disrupted. I think partly is because with someone like Uber, everyone can drive a car. Yeah. But the starting presumption with design is that not everyone can design. Yeah. So they wouldn't have even contemplated (laughs) actually doing it until you showed them that they could actually design. I think that was my unique vantage point was that I could use design programs and found them really easy and was using them for absolutely everything. But at the same time, I'd see my students struggling really with a lot of difficulty trying to figure out where the buttons were, um, let alone how to actually design something that looked good. And so it seemed absurd that so many people, so at my university, most students needed to do some communication classes because every single person needs to be able to communicate, whether you're in the medical industry or marketing or business or whatever it is, um, you need to be able to communicate visually. And I think that's a trend that we're seeing happen more and more is across every single industry, you need to communicate more visually. Um, you know, whereas people used to be able to write to a sales letter and now it's expected to be a beautiful visual pitch deck from the sales team and right. marketing used to be you know, more written and now it's more visual. Um, so things like Instagram have actually trained us to demand things to be more aesthetic. Exactly right, right yes. Right. Um, and fortunately, that trend has continued since eight years ago, yeah. um, and even more so today. Uh, the, the funny thing is, when you look at a company like Adobe, they thought that they disrupted their own model by moving away from software to the cloud. But in a way, what you've seen is that it wasn't the design software that needed to be disrupted, it was taking away the design elements, it's simplifying. 
Well, I think that when you design something, typically you'd have to go and learn design for a few years and then you have to um, go to a stock photography library and purchase stock photos then an illustration library and then a layout library and then you'd have to collaborate over things like Dropbox or email and then you'd have to actually use all those design tools like Adobe InDesign and Photoshop and Illustrator right. and then you're preparing your design for web and print all of the these The creative bit was only the, the 20% yeah, of the total exactly, activity, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so designers themselves find this process quite frustrating because rather than actually designing and spending time on branding and that sort of thing, they're spending time making tiny text tweaks and doing really annoying, arduous things. Um, and so the whole concept of Canva, was we brought all this together and made it simple. Uh, something like, I've read that something like half of the Fortune 500 companies are using your software. Yeah, it's so, so design is, is actually fairly embedded in the ordinary business life more than we thought. Definitely. Um, it's been pretty crazy watch, watching Canva take off. We've actually now got 9 million users and they're creating a couple of designs every second. Right. Um, and, and hopefully they're not just, you know, updating their social media accounts at work. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. They're actually doing work work at work, right? They're using it for all sorts of different things. Um, it's quite funny. We've had a sheriff's office in the US was using it to create wanted posters. All sorts of things I would never have I, considered. I, I, I can't even contemplate. Like, <laughs> what, what, what a well-designed wanted poster should wanted look Wanted like. Wednesdays. They're actually very media savvy. <laughs> oh, so is it, is it actually people that are wanted? Wanted, yeah. Like they actually advertise the people that are wanted, share it through social networks and oh. have captured criminals based on this. It's crazy. Uh, terrorist Tuesdays. Right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like another charity that we're using it to... Um, help dogs find homes so the, right. the real use cases of Canva has completely blown um, my mind actually I was surprised I mean, years ago I worked as a management consultant it was a bit like Mad Men they had a team of like 20 people in a room who designed the slides because <laughs> the consultants weren't allowed to do it that you had to draw it on paper and you had it to them and they actually built them yeah uh, but, but you're actually building presentations as well in a way you've got templates that drive all of that yeah. business communication so actually um, we just launched a product called Canva 4 which is our premium product Right. And that was exactly the feedback that we were getting across so many of the companies that we were speaking to was that like the sales team, for example, gets totally neglected by the design team because they just have to create so many different pitch decks. Um, and so what we've actually been able to do is have... Um, it, with Cam of Work, your design team can create templates that then the rest of the organization can use. So it means that everyone's getting beautiful on-branded content um, all the time without having to go back and like, oh, we need to update the number of something or a new person starts and now all of a sudden we need to completely go back to the design team to change the title of the person or change the name on the business card. So right. the idea is it can be disseminated and um, the design team can have a lot more leverage within an organization. Looking at, I guess, the business that you've built, I mean, you, you also from a design perspective, you had the opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper. Yeah. Uh, so as you've grown and as you've made decisions about how you grow, what have been some of the important things that you've decided to build into the design of Canva from a business perspective? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And that's what's been really fun about Canva is rather than looking and saying, you know, how can we try and tweak the things that are currently existing? We're like, what is the future? And we've sort of had this vision of what the future is for many years now, um, which was both fun and helpful and challenging. <laughs> so we wanted to create the future where everything was online, evidently. Um, it would be collaborative by default and it would be really simple. You have all of the tools at your fingertips very, very quickly and easily. Um, so that's been something that's sort of been built in from Canva from the very early stages. But then also the design of the actual company itself. So I've always wanted to create a company that I wanted to work at. And so that's sort of been 
the leading thread throughout everything is that making sure that people actually enjoy coming to work and it's a nice environment to be in and we always have lunch together as a team um, and that's something that we've done from the very early days when we're actually still in my mum's living room right. which has been quite funny. Well, what does the impact of people coming together and having lunch together have on culture? I mean presumably it's not just about getting good food. Totally. <laughs> it, it, might, it must do something. That's added benefit. Well, absolutely. Uh, but it must do something for some of the internal networks, the way people collaborate. 100%. So why lunches is actually a really important staple in our culture. So um, in the early days when we were having lunch around my mum's living room table, um, we'd always be talking to her to each other and getting to know each other as people and actually enjoying each other's company. Um, and that is a trend that we now do with 100 people. So the dynamics of how we actually do that have changed slightly. Rather than having leftovers from my mom's fridge, we now have amazing chefs that come in and cook incredible, delicious, healthy lunches. Um, so that's, that's a really cool part of it. But it's also, I think, the fundamental staple of being together and enjoying each other's company. Something about eating together um, has a really important impact, I think. Have you also looked internally at the kind of tools you use to communicate and collaborate? Have you, have you sort of challenged things like email and other other collaboration tools? It, what else have you done, I guess, to challenge the paradigm of how companies yeah. should work? It's quite funny. At different stages, we've had to have completely different systems and processes. So when we were five people sitting in a room, um, there wasn't that many things that we needed to orchestrate because five people, you have complete context of what everyone else is doing at every point in time. Yeah. Um, strategy conversations just happen or all the time and everyone knows everything. But with a hundred people in two offices, it kind of changes. So we used to never even have set meeting times, um, not even meeting anything. So, but now every Monday, each team will meet together and discuss the strategy and the plans. And then on Fridays, we do stand up where everyone will create a Canva design and then say what they've been working on. And that lasted until quite recently where every team would talk about what they're working on. But now with a hundred people and I think about 20 odd teams. Um, Could actually take all week. Exactly. <laughs> so we've recently had to change to a new strategy that on Fridays, rather than every single team presenting, we do a deep dive into the team. And so a team will present for five minutes about what they're doing and we do three to five teams, um, which means that we can get a more deeper understanding, but not every week, every team presenting. And I'm sure when we're 150 with 200 people, we'll have to change those systems again. But And we've just started a newsletter and we that was something that you totally don't need when you have five people because everyone knows everything. Yeah. So at different stages, different structures um, suit the team. But I think it's important to be to know that that's a fluid thing that constantly needs to change and be reinvented. The scaling thing is hard because I mean even lunch doesn't scale when you have a thousand people in ten offices. <laughs> um, but I guess the principle of lunch, which is letting people have a common ground, yeah, you'll find some 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 other way of doing it. Actually, that's quite funny. So even lunches, the way we do lunches, have had to change. So in the early days, we'd sit down and the bowls would be in the middle of the table and everyone would just like help themselves. Right. But now we have in this office about fifty people. Um, we've just had to move to having two different islands that people can come and serve so there's like four lines so we actually had a target for the um, Vibe team who do our lunches to get lunch lines down to about two minutes because they were starting to take ten minutes to be able to get their lunches which was a total So you've got an agile time. process now yeah. <laughs> running lunch. So now we, had, like, we actually had to make that their goal like one minute lunch line or two minute lunch lines and now I think we've got it down to about a minute so it's, it's very quick. <laughs> a lot of companies look at smaller companies like yours and they go how do we become as agile and as quick to respond to a customer needs. 
Uh, and I guess you can see as you're growing that the challenge of maintaining that. Yeah. So, so what do you think is the philosophy that you can take as you scale up to keep keep things agile? That's a really important point and something that's been extremely topical and top of mind for me um, in particular this year. Um, so we've got a model called small empowered teams, which is right. very obvious. It's small teams that are very empowered. Um, but I think that... It's not holacracy though, is it? No, it's... Right. Um, so you're keeping your job title for now. <laughs> I think there's someone related, but the like the idea is that every team has um, great context around what they're doing, right. and then so we will set the strategic vision and talk to the team about what we're working on, um, but the team then gets to make all the great decisions and actually move towards their timeline. So, for example, each team will set. Their, we actually have this a pretty fun model. So the team chooses their big goal worthy of celebration, mm-hmm. and so it can be launching a feature, it can be improving a metric by ten percent or by fifty percent, um, and then when they hit that. We have a celebration and so we have all of the team goals on posters on the walls and then when the team hits their goal we do a celebration so last year we did some funny things like we released doves and we smashed great plates for another celebration and this year we um did a have you heard of la tomatina in no. Where they throw tomatoes at people. Oh, right, because yeah, they had the big festival, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. So we did that just a couple of weeks, uh, last week. Um, so, but the idea is that... They have to be pretty good goals, though, to deserve a tomato exactly, festival. Exactly, exactly. They have to be a really big goal worth celebrating. So that, that's actually the line, a big goal worth celebrating. Right. So when they hit that goal, something needs to be like hard and challenging, but when they hit it, then we have a celebration. But they're allowed to choose that themselves. Yeah, exactly. Right. But the thing is that if you have a motivated team that are, you know, really wanting to achieve big things they achieve they choose goals that are way bigger than i said like i wouldn't say do like some of the goals that people have are crazy but that's awesome because like that big aspirational goal that they're aiming towards is um what's motivating and fun when i look out uh, into your office i see two very different sets of people you've got engineers you've got very creative people but they're all mixed together yeah <laughs> and i guess your business is really the convergence of those two worlds have you found it's been different managing the culture of those two sets or is it is it all just sort of meld together? I think it all melds together, but it's also when people are united um, with a mission and a goal worth celebrating and something that they're trying to achieve that seems a little bit impossible, but maybe can be possibly done. That's what unites everyone. And like, it doesn't matter your personality type or your profession or you know, anything else like that, if you've got this thing that you're trying to achieve together, you want to work with the best, smartest, motivated, passionate people to achieve those things. Um, and I think that's the common thread behind it all. When you've been growing the business, uh, you're now up to, is, is, is it over three million? Um, nine. Nine million yeah. users. <laughs> that's extraordinary. So it's really growing exponentially now. It really is. What, what, what do you attribute that to? Like, what, what, what were the decisions you made that really took it from linear growth to exponential growth? I think there's a lot of things um, that have contributed to it, but one of the most important has been solving a problem that people care about. Um, and so I think that from that very early fundamental building block of having something that people need, people need to design great things. Everyone wants to look good when they're putting out their startup pitch deck or they're doing a marketing proposal or they're trying to get a resume designed. It's a very fundamental need for a lot of people across a lot of industries. Um, and so solving a pain point that affects a lot of people sort of means that we have that fundamental building ground that people need our product. Right. Um, and then designing a product that people love means that they'll tell their friends about it. And so I think those two fundamental building blocks sort of set the set the ground for um 
really crazy growth. But then having an incredible team that are achieving incredible things um, certainly helps. <laughs> what is your biggest acquisition source? Is, is, is it people discovering something designed by someone else on Canva on social media or do you actually actively target certain populations? It's all sorts of things. Um, it's from people telling their friends about it. Word of mouth is incredibly strong. We've had um, 17,000 video tutorials were made by our community. Oh, wow. Like an absurd number of blog posts have been made about Canva. Um, when people search for Canva on Google, they often find Canva because they're looking for Canva. Like, so if they're searching for flyer design brochure or whatever it is, um, they're tending to find Canva. So I think across all of those things, people search for things like Canva because they need it which helps us to find our users who are looking for things like us and then people tell people about Canva because they like what we're building so um, all of the above. <laughs> what were some of your problems early on when you were trying to get people to use it was it because I noticed you've, you've spent a lot of time and effort on the onboarding process yes now it was actually quite funny so we spent about a year in development um, in the initial stages and that was a really long year of a lot of very technical challenges. And we spent a lot of time trying to make the interface really simple. And we did. And it was a beautiful, simple product um, that was easy to use. But we realized that people struggled still. When, so we actually use this great website called usertesting.com where you can watch a video of someone using your product. Um, and we were watching these videos and people were scared to press buttons. And they didn't trust that they could actually design anything because people are so conditioned to believe that design is a really hard thing to do. Usually by designers. By designers. They're like, I can't design. I have no design ability. And they're scared and like, scared they're going to press the wrong thing and break something. And so a really important part of our early stages was trying to encourage people to believe that it was possible. And so we had a 23 second intro that it drags, searches for something, drags it on the page and publishes it. Um, and it just means that 23 seconds, oh, I can do that. Like everyone can watch something for 23 seconds and learn how to do it. But then not only could, do we need to show them how it was done, we need to say, yes, not only is it easy, but you personally can do it. Right. And so then it goes through these five starter challenges and they're really designed to be playful. So for example, you have to click on a circle and change it to your favorite color and then um, add a hat on a monkey like really silly things but when people realize that they can do that um, I think it changes their belief of what's possible it's very similar to like the level one of a video game right where, exactly. where instead of reading the <laughs> manual which is how it used to be they actually show you what to do that's a perfect analogy yes right and is data starting to become a bigger part of the way you design the product and those sort of interactions with people yeah so the interesting part is in the early days we spend all of our time just looking at anecdotal feedback, which I think is actually a really valuable thing. So watching one person struggle, you're going to want to fix whatever it is. Like, right. for example, um, in the very, very early days um, with Fusion Books, actually, originally everything was designed to be drag and drop, so you drag it onto your page. Like, that makes a lot of sense. But I'd watch people try to click on things and they'd expect it to go onto their page also. So we put in the ability for you to click on it and it go on your page, like it's very obvious. But if we hadn't have seen that one person struggling with that, that wouldn't have been the way it worked. And the whole point of Canva is it works the way you expect it to work. If it's right. not working the way you expect it to work, we have a UX problem, so we need to fix it. Um, and so that anecdotal feedback is really, really important. But now with so many users and so much activity happening, we can really look and dive into the metrics and we can see one million people did this thing or you know people were continuously 
thinking it would work in a certain fashion or getting stuck on this particular page. We just put in this thing last week on our Help Centre articles so people can say, was this article helpful and then give us feedback. So we're getting feedback on every single Help Centre article and we can see what people are commonly searching for and then fix those things and um, or make it more obvious in the UX or fix the bugs. Um, so there's so much data that we can channel back into the teams and um, really make clever decisions based on that. Is the way you use data now an intentional part of the way you run a meeting uh, or is it more just it's brought up you know when people have it because I know one of the things I know is that Amazon is that they really kind of bake it into their processes now. yeah so data is definitely baked into our processes and becoming increasingly so um, because when you have so much useful information yeah. you want to thread that back into the company and there's all sorts of data there's data from the way people are actually using the site um, there's data from the way people you know from user testing there's data from feedback that's coming through our support centre. We've had 180,000 tickets have come through our support centre. So there's a lot of really valuable feedback. Um, and if we can take all of that data and make the product better, it's a pretty awesome thing to be able to do. You're building a, an organisation and a platform of increasing complexity. So, so <laughs> as someone who runs this business, how do you now make decisions about what you pay attention to? Like, where do you feel like you get the most leverage from your attention? So this whole small empowered teams model is very, very helpful because it means that at the start of a project, we set up a design doc of what the team's going to be doing. Um, and then they have a goal that we all agree upon. And I think this is totally something that we're going to, is going to be worth celebrating. By the way, how small is small? We're not talking about two people here, right? It's um, everything from two to six. Right. I really want to keep them small. Okay. Um, and in fact, when a team gets to the size of 10 or 15, that even though they can be working on towards the same goal and have very um, finite things that they work. If, if a team gets too big, you can't actually see the connection of your work and the outcome. Right. And so the smaller the team is, the more obvious that becomes. And are they just, are they cross-functional? Yeah, definitely. Right. So that's actually a really important part as well. In our very early stages, we had the front-end team and the back-end team and then marketing. Um, which and the lunch queue team. <laughs> <laughs> but nowadays we actually, we have teams that have front-end engineers, back-end engineers, data people, design people, marketing people, um, and we're trying to move increasingly to that model um, where the team can make great things happen um, and you know work on high-leverage projects and see their work turn into reality. So I think as we get bigger and bigger, it's so important to keep that um, distinction that this team can achieve great things um, without having to have too many cords to other parts of the company and too many interdependencies. Is the team really um, what people do day to day or is it an adjunct to their work? Your whole organisation is organised by, by teams, is it? Yes, <laughs> the common B. Right. Um, so the idea is that people's work maps into the goals that they are aiming towards. Um, and that's, <laughs> it sounds pretty simple, but that's the, the whole path behind it, I guess. Yeah, and, and so do you, from a, the point of view of innovation, as you keep pushing forward, is that all driven by what at a grassroots level what those teams want to do or do you have a sort of a separate sort of group of people just thinking about crazy ideas? Um, both. So within a team, teams often come up with crazy ideas um, and then we sort of got the underlying vision which has been sort of something for him trying to work on for eight years. <laughs> so, um, and we still are so far away from achieving that. Like we've taken great strides in that direction, but like by the end of next year, we'll set a base one of most of the things that were in my pitch deck from like five years ago. Um, so the sort of a, an interplay between the two, we're setting up teams based on things that were in the pitch deck from many years ago that still haven't yet come into fruition yet. Um, and then at the same time, like the marketplace team, they're getting that user information, they're getting the 
feedback from our customers. They're coming up with their own ideas and trying to push things to crazy heights. So a bit of a bit of all of the above. So what worries you the most? Um, it's a really good question. At the start of this year, my concern was how do we keep all the amazing things that we love about our company as we grow? Right. Because we are growing very rapidly. And so it's really important that we have um, keep the things that we love and um, are able to actually benefit from the larger team size and the larger user base and all this customer information. Do you mean this from a cultural standpoint? From an everything standpoint, I guess. Um, 180,000 tickets, that's so much valuable information. And if we're not able to take that information and thread it back into the teams, it's a huge loss. Mm -hmm. So we've just done this huge um, changes to our customer happiness team to break. They, they were actually a great example. They were a team of 15 and now they're six teams. Um, right. And those six teams have all sorts of goals. So one team's concentrating on the search in our help center and making sure they're getting great results. And another team is concentrating on the tickets that are coming through and making sure the troubleshooting articles are great and helpful. And just constantly as teams grow and become large teams, we probably need to reanalyze what they're doing and make sure that each of the teams have great information and are able to actually see their work shooting into reality and helping make our customers happy. Because also, as you get more and more teams, the complexity of all their interactions, how do you, I mean, you can't put them on a whiteboard anymore. Like, what's the God view of that? How, how do you manage that? That's actually quite funny. So our newsletter that we're actually doing our first one next week right. um, does exactly that. So it takes all of the teams um, and they all have a little Canva design and they talk about how close, like what they're doing and how they're getting towards it, how they're tracking towards their goal right. and the date that they think they're going to hit their goal celebration date and their mission. Um, and so you can actually have God view for the entire company of all of the different teams and all of the different goals that they're shooting the inter for. The interdependencies must be a nightmare though. <laughs> um, we try to make logical groupings. So there's the six teams in customer happiness and they all work together and they have team meetings as a team as well. Right. So they've got their small teams which actually are their functional work groups and then the teams across that which is that they're all shooting towards helping to deal with customer information when they're either searching for it or they're giving us tickets. So. Oh, it is, it is increasingly complex. But do you think you'll eventually have a HR department that's going to coordinate it, or do you think you're going to stay with this sort of um, emergent self-organising? I wouldn't say it, it's self-organising within a team, but then it also needs to be orchestrated to make sure that the right teams are working on the right things, but then that information also comes from the teams themselves. Right. That's an interesting interplay. <laughs> so, so the leaders like yourself still are putting people on the teams? To some extent. Yeah, people sometimes say, I'd love to work on this team. I think this is a big need for the company. Um, a combination, again. <laughs> so, so I asked you what you're most scared about, but uh, what are you most excited about for the next couple of years? I'm excited about seeing all of these things actually come into reality after such a long time of trying to get things off the ground and you know, three years between meeting the first investor and actually raising money and a year of trying to find a technical co-founder and hundreds of revisions to the pitch deck and all of these other things that it didn't seem like it would necessarily get across the line. Eventually it did and then a year of development and now it's been two and a half years <laughs> out in the world and all the rest of it. Um, I think I'm just excited about seeing it all to come together. Um, it's actually quite funny. I think one of the best metaphors is a jigsaw puzzle. Um, actually, this is a great metaphor. Okay. So I think a great metaphor is a jigsaw puzzle. So what we actually did was we got each office to put together a jigsaw puzzle, a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle with the entire team. And it was a great reflection of actually the reality of a company is that you ended up with all these self-organizing teams. That, so we had people that were doing the corners, the edges, the inside parts, the different color blocks. 
It's a huge... A thousand piece jigsaw thousand puzzle. Um, but with 50 people putting it, 40 <laughs> people putting it together. So it was actually a really interesting insight into how you build it. Because it actually gets exponentially more difficult the more people involved, That's exactly right. 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 And you're all trying to put together this big vision. Um, and so we'd have so many innovations across the team. So some people were taking photos with their iPhone. So then people, that was what was happening in the middle office. So then everyone could um, zoom into the photo and actually see their part and how it was mapping to the bigger <laughs> picture. And then we'd have people that would be like taking pieces from one team to the other team and then other people would be overlooking parts of the how long did it take in there um so we actually time blocked it so i think we did it for about an hour in each of the teams um in sydney and manila and we got through quite a bit of the puzzle um but i think what's going to be quite funny is now we have a hundred people coming together in manila we might have to try the exercise again It'd be a really good thing to benchmark over time. Like, totally. As you get bigger and bigger, how long does it take to assemble a thousand-piece puzzle? Exactly right, yeah. <laughs> um, Mel, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. It's a wonderful story. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.